Ridgeland High School, class of 1989. Welcome to the official 35th annual reunion podcast, where we talk all things reunion. And now, here's your host, Brian Kirk. Thank you, Devin. Hey, this is Brian Kirk, and today is February 17th, 2024. We are just 22 weeks away from our 35th reunion, and in today's episode, we have a very special guest. We have American singer and Broadway star, Gary Morris, Richland High School, class of 67. We're going to hear more from Gary about his time at RHS and how he got a start in the entertainment industry. So now it's my honor to say hello to Gary Morris and welcome him to our podcast. Hello, Gary. Hey, man. Brian's nice to talk with you. I'm uh, excited for all those people that are going to have their reunion this year. It's a great chance to see uh, people that uh, you might not have seen in several years. So I'm glad to do this podcast with you. Hey, it's, it's great to have you with us today. So RHS opened in 61 and your class is 67. Yeah, you're one of the first graduating classes to finish all three years at the new campus of RHS. So can you take us back in time? What can you share with us? about your time at Richland. Well, we'll need more than this podcast if we want to want to know what <laughs> I can share about it. It was uh, actually w- one of the greatest times educational-wise and learning about life that probably the whole course of my life, the high school there. I didn't come from a real social family and Richland High School when it when it opened it joined people from uh, the northeast side of town, from Richland Hills. Everybody went to Birdville before that. So, you know, I grew up on Tabor Drive there in North Richland Hills. And when, when I was a kid, Riley, which was the next street, was the last street. Mm. There, was no, there was nothing out past it, including the high school. So I grew up there. I grew up playing tag football in the street. There were no houses or no development on the other side of Ruth Snow Drive and was in the first class at North Richland Junior High, graduated there and then went to Richland High School. And I'd already, of course, been fans of uh, the Richland Rebels, the football teams when I when I was in uh, junior high. I went to the high school games to watch them play. And so... I was looking forward to going there, and and uh, some of the most influential teachers in my whole educational career happened right there in Richland High School. Well, I think one of the teachers you might remember, and many of us um, know so so well, is U.S. Representative Kay Granger, 12th District of Texas. She was one of your teachers, wasn't she? That's right. Kay Granger was my English teacher, and it was her first year of teaching out of college. So she must have been maybe 22. I don't know. Well, I don't know how old she was, but she was young and it was her first first year of teaching. And we were uh, a rather, I'm not going to use the word rowdy, but that might be applicable class. There were a bunch of guys on the football team that were all in that class together. Bobby Kugel and a guy named Joe Walker. And of course I was in there. I, I can't remember all of them, but it was a, an interesting time, and uh, we got this assignment from Miss Granger for our class, to, everybody to write a poem. 
then we were going to turn them in and then she was going to select some the next week and and read them to the class so so i wrote this poll and i turned it in like everybody else and so on the following i believe it was the following friday she said today i'm going to read poems so we sat there and for an hour she read poems and she read a poem and i'd go well that's that that was interesting or that's that's a bunch of crap or what is that and <laughs> i kept waiting thinking well of course i wrote the perfect poem and uh, so eventually the, the bell rang and she said class dismissed and gary uh you need to come to my desk and she said if you'll uh, if you'll tell me where you plagiarized this poem i'll give you a d otherwise i'm going to give you an f and i went well I didn't plagiarize it. I, I wrote that. She said, no, you didn't write this. Where did you find it? I said, I wrote it, Miss Granger. And she said, well, I'm going to give you an F on it. I said, probably something like knock yourself out and left. Gave me an F on the poem. Hmm. And the, the thing about that memory staying with me when I came back later, and it was either Tarrant County Convention Center or Bass Hall where I was playing, and I'd gotten this information to my office in Nashville from Kay Granger's office the, um, that uh, she was going to be in the audience to hear me play that night. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, great. And uh, so I introduced her in the audience between songs and told the audience that story. And then I, I asked her what she thought. And she stood up and she said, uh, I might have missed that one. It was, uh. but, but it, <laughs> she was cool about it. And, uh, <laughs> well, tell us about some other teachers you had or some coaches too. Another guy, of course I had coaches that Rod Bird was my algebra instructor and he was a basketball coach and algebra was pretty easy for me. I remember one day he said, Hey, he called me up to his desk. He says, you can, you get what we're doing today? I went, yeah, I got it. He said, gave me his keys and said, here's five dollars or four dollars or whatever it was he's like can you go get my car washed <laughs> sure and uh, so i left class and but and jerry sessions is one that i remember because once again there were like three of us that all all could sing or hum or harmonize and there was this this whistle that went on in the uh, science class and it was from one of the air vents it just kind of a, a whistling noise and he'd be up at the board uh, doing some kind of diagram of the digestive system or something. And the three of us were in the back and we'd start either whistling or humming harmony to this sound. And he'd turn around and who's doing that? You know, we'd all clam up and I got busted one day for lighting the Bunsen burner and flame throwing in class. So I wasn't really uh, an outlaw, but we had fun. <laughs> I think a lot of people in class of 89 will have fond memories of Mr. Sessions. He was still the science teacher when our class went to school there at Richland. So in addition to that, what else did you do? Were you, you must have been in the choir, um, did the musical, things like that, right? And we did Oklahoma. And, and I thought at the time, what the, Doug Fisher was the drama coach or the drama teacher. We're doing Oklahoma, and he's saying that we have to get a southern accent hmm. to do <laughs> Oklahoma. And we recorded it, and it and it sounded like this: "I got to Kansas City on the Friday." I mean, it was so far <laughs> from. I mean, we already had 
our accent that we grew up with, which I've lost a lot of it in the last few years, but those particular teachers still are in my mind. And, and, and of all my football coaches, Jesse Wright, uh, was a backfield coach. We used to run man eaters after practice, which you're down on all fours and you're, you're doing a hundred yards as fast as you can on all, all fours. And mm-hmm. he used to walk behind me and say, Morris, you're dogging it. And I wasn't, I was going as fast as I could go, but where I think we went nine and one in my senior year, I believe that's what it was. We were beaten by Wichita Falls, but we had probably the smallest team in the league in terms of, you know, size in general, uh, Joe Walker was a tailback, and he was what probably weighed 190 pounds. He was he was bigger than most of our linemen, but you know <laughs> um, he played tailback. But we had a we had a gutsy team, and um, uh, Rigsby was still the head coach. And my my twin sister, by the way, Carrie, she was a head majorette. So <laughs> football night at, um, at Burville Stadium was a, a kind of a family night for us. In fact, uh, she used to say that as many people came to see the uh, band as came to see the football game. Uh, <laughs> she said that one time in front of my mom and dad and me, and I said, well, why don't y'all move the band to Thursday night then? And <laughs> fill the stadium two nights in a row. <laughs> so, But I played four sports, and there, there was never a downtime for me. It was, it was just who I was. So I wasn't social. There's not anybody in the senior class, 1967, that will say I was a social butterfly. I went to Richmond Hills Baptist church and I didn't drink and I didn't smoke. And, and on weekends I was recuperating most of the time from, from, uh, some kind of athletic practice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I didn't get the lead in any musical. I sang with the choir so I played on the football team, sang with the choir, did that. And uh, so probably my life with people that go there to school now. Well, the year that I graduated after that, they changed the dress code. And there was a dress code that, you know, you, you, you had to have a shirt that was tucked in. Your hair couldn't be touching your collar. And girls had to have, they wore skirts or dresses. They had to be below the knee or whatever it was something archaic and of course the year after i graduated i guess you could come to school naked it didn't matter Uh, (laughs) so everything was beginning to change but um well during that time did y'all have uh vacations or did you go on spring break things like that if we had a spring break we didn't call it that when we had the christmas break and uh in the the spring break i worked I worked at, uh, there was a, a Montgomery Wards. I got a two-week job in the shoe department, putting shoes on people's feet, you know, smelly job. And I didn't know mm-hmm. anything about shoes, but I mean, it was a, it was a, a job that I could pick up a little money and, and, and the same thing in spring break. There wasn't any, let's go to the coast. It was uh, simply a, a little work time. Uh, my dad, the most he ever made in his life, was like twenty one or two thousand dollars in a year, and you know we lived in an eleven hundred square foot house on Tabor Drive, and it, so I grew up. If I didn't turn the lights off when I walked through a room and they were on, I'd, I'd get chastised for it. You know, we, we got I pay electric bill here. We turn the lights off when we're not in the room, and though he worked for the phone company. You know, back then there were party lines and 
you know, we we were we were limited to how much time we could be on the phone. It it, it sounds pretty archaic now, and and the people who are graduating this year won't have a clue as to what I'm talking about. Probably but, not. No, it, most people don't even know what a landline phone is anymore. Can you tell us, Gary, what was it like to be living in North Richland Hills in 1967? During that time, um, and during my whole high school time, I had a lot of what you call raw land to roam on, uh, where there were no houses. And the, Smithville was a distance away. Colleyville, I mean, that was out in the boonies. And uh, <laughs> so I rode my bicycle and took my little bow and arrow and BB gun and hunted rats and mice and caught crawdads on a string all the way into high school because we might go out to Grapevine Lake because that was before the airport. I went out there sometimes with a guy named Bill English who was my second cousin and played he played on the football team and and my best friend Eddie Johnson and we were able to scrounge up a boat we'd go out there and on a weekend and fish and we'd catch crawdads and use them for bait. It's like it was almost like a rural life, although we were within the confines of a subdivision there, and it was growing quickly. I do remember seeing some pictures from the archive of Richland High School with a bunch of green fields around it. And when our class went to school there, uh, there was a lot of development there around Roof Snow and Loop 820 that really took off. There was and... no 820 when I was there. <laughs> you oh, know. wow. There was 121 and 183. And uh, 820 was being built. And we went out when I was a kid. We went out all the way and would sit in the truck at uh, at the airport and watch planes land. That was a big deal. It's not within the consciousness of young people today. <laughs> but but high school was a, a real turning point for me in terms of uh, my vision of what my future could be. And I thought it was going to be in athletics. And it was a trip to Colorado during my after my sophomore year of college that ended me up in the music business so yeah tell us more about that too I want to hear more about how you got your start in the music industry and and if uh, any of your time at Richland or growing up in Texas had any inspiration in your music oh yeah Eddie Johnson who was also on the football team probably my best friend he had gone off to Texas Tech and I was out in Cisco playing ball and going to school and at the end of my sophomore year he said hey we and one of my fraternity brothers are going to go to colorado you want to go and i said yeah i'd gone to colorado almost every summer since i was six or seven and we ended up got, had an apartment in boulders 1969 and these two guys had a, a tech uh, were in a fraternity and they'd done what it's called a woodsy which is a, a keg out at the lake a beer keg and campfire and sings and whatever they do and uh we auditioned at this place called taylor supper club the little trio ron todd eddie johnson and myself and we did four or five songs for this club owner and then he said well do you know any country music and i of course had only listened to that but i'd really never sung anything that was country and but eddie and ron said oh yeah 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 and they they looked at me and this is an audition he's and eddie said hank williams find a harmony they started playing this Hank Williams medley, and um, I, I jumped right in and sang on Kalijah and I'm so lonesome I could cry, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I want to take you upstairs and put you on in front of a live audience. This is no longer an audition. I want to see what how they respond to you. And we, 
we went upstairs in this nightclub and played, and the place went berserk. It was 1969, and of course, I had white side walls for hair. Our hair was short. We had no facial hair. We looked like we, you know, just came out of um, Texas. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we walked off stage, and he says, I tell you, I want to hire you guys. I've got five acts. So there's no dancing. It was just simply, you know, a showroom. People paid a cover charge and ate a meal and, uh, and they got entertainment. So he says, I'll give you each a hundred dollars a week. I want you to do two 20 minute shows. So we, we agreed to it. And we, we all had jobs in the day, it was summer jobs and work in construction over in Boulder for Eddie and me and, and Ron was already had an architecture job with a firm. So we did that each week for 10 weeks. The club owner says, I'm going to give you each another hundred dollars a week. So at the end of 10 weeks, I was making a thousand dollars a week to sing two 20 minute shows a night. <laughs> and I had to decide whether to go back to red dirt, Lubbock, Texas and play football. And I already had ruptured a disc and, uh, have no cartilage in my nose and blah, blah, blah from, from football. Or I can stay in Colorado. I make a thousand dollars a week and do music. So my music career began then. Well, that's where it started. And I know your journey has taken you all across the world and performed at so many wonderful places, but one place stands out and it's the white house. I'd love to hear more about your opportunity to perform for the president. I I'd, I'd played in Colorado. I came back to Texas and it was uh, 1976, and there was something the Fort Worth Star Telegram. I was in out in uh, Northeast Fort Worth, close to Richland's, where I had rented a place. I was playing out at a Holiday Inn in Bedford, which is still there. And uh, there was something in the paper that said uh, Lloyd Benson was trying to keep this guy named Jimmy Carter off the ballot in Texas for the Democratic nomination. Now, I wasn't a I wasn't political. I wouldn't take sides, but I didn't think that was right. And so basically I called up the Democratic Party and a lady named Ann Merrick. We had a conversation and I said, this doesn't seem right. Why can't he be on the ballot so everybody can get to see who they want to vote for? And she said, well, you can do petitioning work if you want. So I took this little trio I had out on that Saturday. We, we went out for three or four hours and got some you know, a couple of three pages of names and handed them in, thought that was it. And shortly after that, I got a call from a guy named Jody Powell, who ended up being President Carter's press secretary. And uh, he said, I heard you did some work for the governor. And I said, well, not I, I just went out and did some petitioning. He said, well, they told me you were a singer. And I said, yeah, I sing. And he said, well, we'd like to come hear you sing. When the governor comes to Dallas, Fort Worth, maybe you can open up for us. And I said, gave him an address and told him where they come. And they came in and they listened to our little trio sing. And he asked me on the spot, can you get to Asheville, North Carolina? This was on a Monday. I said, by, by Friday, the governor is doing his first major speech. And it's in the college coliseum. And they said, we only have $500 we can pay you. And we get you a room when you get there. So I had to buy my own gas. We loaded up in a Chevy van and went to Asheville, went on stage. And I wrote this little recitation I did in what they call American Trilogy. Uh, Elvis had a big record on American Trilogy and it has Dixie in it, which should be familiar to anybody mm -hmm. listening to this. And 
And I wrote this recitation and said it and then said, ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States. And he walked out on stage and the audience erupted. They were standing and cheering. And he went over to microphone because I still got to sing glory, glory, hallelujah. And he's trying to sing and we go off stage and they say, can we do the next 14 days? And that ended up being over a hundred performances in front of who would end up being the president of the United States. Wow. And closure on that subject. He brought me back CMA night to the white house. And there was Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn and Tom T hall and a whole bunch of Opry people. They all did their performance. We went in the East room and, and ate. Then he said, let's go back and have a guitar pool in the back in the same room. We went back in there and he walked up and said, I want y'all to hear my favorite singer. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> so there, he brought me up and I sang two songs. And then eventually, when I moved to Nashville to try to get a record deal, I got I just went down and kind of barged into the Warner Brothers office and sat down and waited till I could meet somebody. And a guy came out named Noro Wilson. He says, you want to see me? And I said, are you Noro? He said, yes, I am. Then I stood up and I had on uh, overalls and work boots and long black beard and long hair. I looked like anything that shouldn't be in Nashville. And he said, did you sing at the white house? And I said, yes, I did. And he brought me in his office and an hour later I was officially on Warner brothers. Well, it sounds like you got discovered because you got to perform at the white house. It's absolutely true. That, absolutely. And uh, Harold Bradley, Bradley Barnes, a famous recording studio, Harold's guitar player. And he he was the one I talked to who said the only guy that will understand the way you sing is Norrell Wilson at Warner Brothers. So mm-hmm. I just finally plopped my butt down and he recognized me from from actually being at the White House. So I owe it all actually to the Fort Worth Star Telegram that I happened to read that piece and uh, was for a moment politically motivated. Yeah, I think even the odds of getting, you know, picked up by a label, it's 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 rare for a lot of performers out there, but it's probably even more rare for someone to get a chance to perform at the White House. For the two of those things to happen, that's a great uh, it's a great moment. It is, Brian. And from that time up to our last president, President Trump, I did not play for him, but every president prior to that, from Carter to Ford to Reagan to uh, Bush Sr. Bush Sr., I pl- must have played eight or ten different events and did a private thing in his home for he and some friends in his later days. And uh, and Bill Clinton and played uh, Bush Jr.'s first inauguration and played uh, Obama's first inauguration and then when came to <clears throat> Trump, I kind of bowed out. Um, but yeah, so not only did I get to play there once, but I played there multiple times and on the White House lawn and, and around the globe for the uh, Armed Forces radio network and TV. I've been, been abroad uh, in camps in Europe. And uh, so... A wonderful trip for a guy born in Fort Worth, grew up in North Richland Hills. Not a bad path at all, from North Richland Hills to Colorado to eventually performing at the White House. But then your journey took you eventually to perform in New York City on Broadway for the production of Les Mis. 
Can you tell us more about how that happened? Well, uh, uh, Brian, I'll just back up maybe four years before that. I did Lobo M with Linda Ronstadt in public theater, and that was something I didn't want to do. I was already on Warner Brothers. I already had Wind Beneath My Wings. It already won Song of the Year for me. In fact, I was in New York about to go on with uh, Linda when uh, Wind won Song of the Year. And uh, I did it because Warner Brothers Pop out of L.A. said, this is a chance for you to sing with Linda Ronstadt. It'll be great for your career and we'll get get you known out there. And so I did Lobo M and uh, it was a fun time. In fact, I put the uh, big aria from the opera on one of my records. It's like a bonus track. I think it's on the hits album with just me singing with a piano player. I recorded that live on the stage of the Opry with nobody in it. I just wanted to have it. So I did that opera and I knew it was going to hurt me or it hurt me some at radio because country radio didn't want anybody, you know, not yodeling something. But fortunately it was with Linda Ronset and I, and it was kind of a, a big moment. So three years after that, I looked at what was going on on the charts and, and Randy Travis was on, on Warner Brothers, knew him well. I, I helped him in the beginning get started there. And John Anderson, um, Swang and I mean, Swang, oh, John, yeah. Emmylou Harris, and, well, a bunch of them, but it was moving more towards a traditional sounding or more bluegrassy kind of sound. So I said, let's do something different to my manager. And he said, well, let's go see Les Mis in New York. And uh, we went up and had a look. Colm Wilkinson, the guy that created the role over in London, was doing it. And uh, I told Steve, my manager, Steve Small, I said, I can do that. And they brought me back. I went up and sang for them. And then they called, and I already done Rodolfo. So if you can sing Rodolfo, you can sing anything that a tenor does. Hmm. But they called back and they wanted me to come back and, and sing again. And I asked why, actually, through my management. And they said, well, the French writers are coming over. They want to hear him. So I went back to New York, I sang for them, and they offered me the touring company. And I said, if I want to go to Chicago, I'll go with my band. I have no interest in going out and doing this on the road with Les Mis, but thank you for the offer. And I left, went back. I had a golf tournament that uh, was a Gary Moore Celebrity Classic in Denver. This particular year, it was for a Catholic orphanage. I was just about to give out the trophies to the winning team, my agent grabbed me, said, I need to talk to you. I said, I'm about to give the trophies out. And he said, no, come down or come outside. So I went outside. He said, they, they want you back in New York. And I said, why do they, they said, they want you to play Valjean on Broadway. I said, I thought it was going to the understudy that, that they'd promised it to him. And he said, well, they had, but they called and said, he, he died of a drug overdose today. You have three weeks to learn the show and you open on Broadway. So there is my, how did I get to Broadway moment? <laughs> and it was a wonderful experience. It was, it was six months and you know, you get the last bow. It's just like in La Boheme, you know, at the end of the night of a fabulous show, you're the last one to walk out. And, uh, yeah. And then they, then afterwards, after I went, I went two years later back and did it in L.A. at kind of an encore performance. And they flew me to London and said, we want you to do the international cast album. And we had 
like the Eponine was from, uh, I think she was from Tokyo. The Fontaine was from Toronto. Javert was from Australia. And, uh, but I re-sang it. And then, so the international cast album, which is a two CD set of which I might have the only 50 copies left that I bought from the <laughs> from Warner brothers, just so I'd take them out on the road. It's a box set. But that's that's me doing Valjean. So it was a great time. It was a great thing to do, and um, it pretty much finished the the notion that I could get played on country radio. And so after that time, I never had. I, I've done I don't know how many records since that time. Uh, maybe I've done eight or ten complete hmm. CDs uh, in since 1987, and none of them there's never been a song there played on radio not country radio anyway but if i could do it all over i wouldn't change anything it's like right now i have a I have a, a wonderful place here in southern colorado i have a unbelievably great wife i have the opportunity to go out and play performing art centers in the month of may i'll be back in washington dc doing a big thing. Uh, I'll be closing a big production for an organization called TAPS. And uh, they provide grief counseling to our uh, military families that have lost somebody at war. Wow, Gary, that's, that's incredible. As you travel around, how often do you get to get back to your roots, back to Texas? I come back to work. Um, we moved, uh, my, my mom and dad have both passed and we moved them away from Fort Worth about, I don't know, maybe it was 15 years ago. We moved them up closer to my, my younger brother who's, uh, in Oklahoma and, uh, has, uh, a dealership there, you know, four wheelers, motorcycles, blah, blah, blah. And we moved them closer. So I come back. I still have friends there, play some golf, stop, stop in Dallas. David Reeder's a friend of mine who graduated with me. And, you know, Northeast Optimus was in really North Richland Hills. It was kind of a combination of Halton City and North Richland Hills. And back in the day, our Little League team went to the World Series championship game. And the guy who was a pitcher who led them there was also the quarterback on Richland High School's team, James Williams. And he passed three or four months ago, and uh, he and I stayed friends all this time. And uh, oftentimes I would come in and play Arlington Music Hall, or back in the day I'd play Bass Hall, or even before that, Tarrant County Convention Center. And I might stay with James when my parents were there. I didn't stay at the house, but, you know, would have some time to visit with them. So, like I said earlier, 820 wasn't in. So I grew up on the... Uh, on the other side of the, the tracks, I grew up basically in North Richland Hills proper. And, um, it, it, you know, it was a great place to grow up. Thank you, Gary. Now, this next part of the podcast is something we do in other episodes. Since many of our guests are from class of 89, we go back in time to see what was happening on this date in 1989. But since you graduated before that, we're going to go back and say what was happening on this date in 1967 we'll talk about some news stories we'll share with some of the movies that were on the big screen back then some songs on the radio some shows on the tv so one news event let's see if you remember this one in january of 67 
Apollo 1 caught fire on the launch pad and actually took the lives of three American astronauts. Very tragic event. Does that uh, ring a bell to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was a major deal. In fact, probably as many of us wondered why we were trying to go to the moon and send, send somebody to the moon on it as we're happy about the fact that it was actually going. Uh, it was a, a, a major tragedy. And, uh, yeah, I do remember it. I know the um, movie theaters at the time were showing some really good movies. I think we've all seen these movies, uh, The Good, Bad, The Ugly, with Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah. I'll watch it still if it comes up on Showtime or something. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde was also at theaters with, uh, I think that happened in Texas, didn't it? The true story of Bonnie and Clyde? Oh, yeah. Texas and New Mexico. The Graduate was out in theaters during 67. I remember uh, The Graduate, and, you know, yeah. I remember him outside the you know, window or door screaming her name. Mm -hmm. great movie cool hand luke oh yeah golly i can't believe that was that long ago another um you know ball buster of a movie it was great Mm -hmm. oh yeah they don't make them like that anymore but it required you know uh, really good film cinematographers and uh good actors and of course that's i guess is the most quotable line from that movie is uh what we have here is a failure to communicate (laughs) yeah yeah that's exactly right. But turning from movies now to sports, everybody loves the Dallas Cowboys. It's America's team. And back in the 60s, they didn't play in Texas Stadium with the hole in the roof. They played in the Cotton Bowl. Cotton, that's right. Bob Hayes, one of the fastest men on earth back in the day. Oh, yeah. Andy Don Meredith. <laughs> um, I met a bunch of those guys. Yeah. And that's back. Oh, well, I don't need to get into the politics of being a cowboy fan but <laughs> but if you, you like the cowboys you like their coach and um they were great that season wrapped up where the with the cowboys first ever trip to the playoffs and sadly they lost to the same team they lost to this year uh the green uh-huh. bay packers so it's ironic that that happened but the team that beat them, the packers went on to to play in the championship game which was to be the first super bowl of all times. That's when the Green Bay Packers, the NFL champions, played the AFL champions, Kansas City Chiefs. Wow. And then on TV, some of the top TV shows, there was the uh, Red Skelton Hour, the Ed Sullivan Show. Yeah, absolutely. Ed Sullivan, the Beatles. And then we also started watching shows like Beverly Hillbillies. I have two dogs, Jethro and Ellie Mae. Does that tell you where I was? That's funny. Bewitched, Green Acres. <laughs> and then I think the big show of the year was Bonanza. Yes. Uh, with uh, Little Joe. Yes. The Bonanza. That's the one. Lauren Green was in that show, wasn't he? I think. Yeah, he was. He was, uh, he was uh, the head man. That was a good rendition, too, of the theme song. And speaking of music, the top songs on the radio in 67 included Light My Fire from The Doors. Right. The Association sang a song called Wendy. Wow. I think a big song everyone loves to sing is Ode to Billy Joe. Oh, yeah. Bobby Gentry. That was 67? Yeah. Holy cow. 
Holy cow. Here's a crossover from the TV show The Monkees. The song I'm a Believer was one of the top songs. I'm a believer. Yes, I am. Yeah. I'll remember that. <laughs> Here's another great tenor, Frankie Valley, who's saying, Can't take my eyes off of you. Can't take my eyes off of you. Yeah. Frankie Valley. I'll be dang. I forgot about him. In my house, the only music that was played was somebody named Hank. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, until I got my own car, which was when I was uh, going off to college, that's the radio and the in our cars were all on WBAP. So my experience with pop music back in the day came from uh, Lawrence Welk and, uh, and TV shows that had actually music on them. And um, yep, it's really interesting going back because and being, I guess, probably really involved in the church. It's like uh, the pop music. First ones that caught my attention were the Beatles. And that would have been in my like freshman year or before when I was at Northwestern Junior High. That's when the Beatles like came to my attention. So you're throwing out some stuff that you know, I should have known and been on top of, but I wasn't. <laughs> Well, Gary, it sounds like you have a great zest for life and you don't like to sit still very long. So what are you doing now that's keeping you busy? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I'm still going out and playing. Um, you know, I've got, I'll be back in the Fort Worth, Dallas area sometime. Uh, at Arlington Music Hall. I'll be in Granbury. But I have a project. A good friend of mine is a guy named Dave, Dave Loggins. He had a giant record called Please Come to Boston. It was a, just a global giant record. And he and I, he came to New York when I did Lava Wham and came when I did Les Mis. And we wrote some songs together. I, we had a big hit on a song called Making Up for Lost Time that was a duet with Crystal and me. And I, I recorded a lot of his songs. But I have two charities that, that are personal to me. And one of them is a, a place called Blue Bonnet Ranch down in Victoria, Texas. And I've been going down there 15 years anyway, every year, and helping them raise funds. It's a... Blue Bonnet Ranch, they take in uh, abused kids and neglected kids they, from infant to whatever age. And they've got house families that stay for them. And the major fundraising every year is an ev event where we go down, we do a show. And we have an after hours thing that a whole bunch of songwriters and they're Texas songwriters. A lot of them would have hits that I don't hear that are on, being played on Red Dirt music. Anyway, after every night after all of the official events were over back in the hotel room, we'd get a ballroom and there'd be six or eight of us and we'd trade songs. We just go around in a circle or half moon, whatever it was and then you, you do one. And then the guy next to you and there'd be maybe a 50 or 7,500 chairs set up in, in this room that the hotel donated and we do it every night, but we close each of our songwriting sessions with Please Come to Boston. <laughs> the reason was, it's one song that all of us knew. I mean, if there were eight songwriters, they'd each be doing their own songs. Mm -hmm. And there'd be some sharing and knowing some, especially if they become like big hits. But for some reason, first night, they say, let's do Please Come to Boston. Everybody knows it. So it became a historical thing for us. The main fundraiser passed away. And he's the guy that got me involved. And I went down, sang at his funeral, and then came back and I did the event. And they asked me if I would host it. 
And so I did. Well, I brought to the stage for the entertainment songwriters rather than the dance night and the normal thing. They were all songwriters. And we did basically what we normally do in private for the audience. And we closed with Please Come to Boston because everybody in the room knew it. And, uh, you know, this is like three or 400 people in the room. And uh, so I told the guys, I'm going to make a record of this. And I'm going to get every one of you to sing on it. And I'm going to try to get everyone that we know that a singer songwriter in Texas and my friends in the music business to sing on it. And then we'll give the proceeds from this, please come to Boston release and it'll help fund or maybe entirely fund the blue bonnet ranch. So I'm on my way back. I'm talking with my wife, Paula, and I said, it would be so cool if I could get Loggins to come sing, but he's not, he's not doing well. He's, he's had five surgeries on his lower back and he can hardly get out of bed. And I got back to Nashville and my phone rang and it was my banker. And she said, Hey Gary, I'm having lunch with Dave Loggins on Thursday. You want to come? And I went, I really can't believe it. I said, yeah, I will. And we met at a restaurant and I sat, I scooted in the booth and Dave sat beside me and, and I said, you wouldn't believe how many songs that of his I've cut. I started singing this. She was somebody's mother, but no one ever bothered to call. She's called Better Than New. And he sang the next line. She's got sisters and brothers, a picture of her loving husband on her wall. So I, I put it on David. I said, man, we're going to do this project. We're going to use your song, Please Come to Boston. I'd love it if I could get you to sing just one line, the opening line, anything. He said, I, I don't know if I could sing. I, don't, I really haven't tried to sing at all. He said, but I'll try. During the next week, Brian, he called me at least 10 times. He says, man, I'm, my son has already cut the track. It sounds better than the record. I'm just I'm trying to get where I can sit and at least sing the first line and maybe to the chorus. And I said, great, whatever you can sing, we'll use it. Well, by the end of the week, he called and said, I sang the whole damn thing. You got me. And you can do whatever you want with it. You can put tracks on it. You can have other voices sing on it. You can do whatever you want and give all the money to Blue Bonnet Ranch. So that's my project. I'm, I'm going down to South Texas in May. I'm doing a, a performance for the Texas Outdoor Riders and during my life, I had a TV show called The North American Sportsman, where we hunted and fished all over the world. And I took Troy Aikman and Jay Novacek to Argentina and different people out. So I'm going down there, going to do a show for these writers and speak at their luncheon and then go into the studio. And some of my songwriter friends from South Texas are going to show up. We're going to put more voices on this. What's to be a record release at some point in time. So that's what I'm doing right now. Besides some dates big private show in washington dc for taps which mm -hmm. i'll be the finale for the whole show there'll be guys from the joint chiefs of staff the white house office and probably a thousand people there for that event and uh, other than that i'm just hanging out in colorado in the snow <laughs> that sounds great yeah you are definitely an outdoor person and uh yeah that's must have been fun hanging out with troy Aikman and those guys too and if anyone here in our audience wants to learn more about the Blue Bonnet Ranch or support that anyway, what, what kind of uh, information can they 
can they follow up well, on? They'll be able to go to my website, which is GaryMorris.com, or to uh, Blue Bonnet Ranch. I believe it's BlueBonnetRanch.com. But they can check in with me. They can uh, they can go on my Facebook. We definitely will have it up on my website. We've already got quite a few voices on it. Uh, we've added to it. Uh, I've already signed on it. But you can't ask anybody from my generation if they don't know, please come to Boston. It was such a big record. So even my doctor, I was at my doctor's office. I said, hey, do you know, please come to Boston. He went, please come to Boston for the springtime. Stay in here with some friends and they got lots of room. I went, I, I knew it. I knew he would. And uh, so anyway, we hope it's a, a, a sustaining factor for this wonderful organization down in a little town in South Texas called Victoria. It sounds like a great project. And uh, I didn't know your, your doctor could sing like that. That's a good, uh, that's a good doctor to have. <laughs> uh, you know, when you get to be, se- I'm 75 now, which virtually everybody from my uh, my class of uh, 67 will be that age. You know, you you start uh, counting up uh, not how many days there are in a week, but how many doctors do you need? So <laughs> I'm good. I'm home. I got firewood stacked up to the ceiling outside on my deck. Have a fire going, three feet of snow on the ground, and um, life's good. Gary, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for joining our podcast today. Really appreciate you sharing all the memories from Richland High School back in 1967 and all the memories about your journey to success. So thanks so much for joining our podcast today. My pleasure, pal. Have a good one. Bye-bye. And as a reminder, you can still lock in your tickets for our 35th reunion by visiting our Facebook page, RHS Class of 89. There's also a link in the podcast description to the PayPal account to buy your tickets. Also, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you can be notified when each new episode is released. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartMedia. Or just ask Alexa, play the pre-reunion countdown podcast. And make sure you share this podcast with other alumni and friends so they can join in all the fun too as we count down to our reunion. Until next time, for the Richland High School's pre-reunion countdown, This is Brian Kirk.